Once again, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. And as you do so, please, as is our custom, stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we are going to be focusing our attention this morning uh, on verses 3 through 10. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know we've been trekking through 1 Timothy verse by verse, and so we will continue that this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what Christ would say to the churches. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats. Augustine famously prayed, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Perhaps another way to express Augustine's words would be to say something like this. You and I, we were born to crave, to long, to desire. And so the question is, what will satisfy us? What will satisfy our heart's greatest longings? What will satisfy our soul's insatiable appetite? And the answer, at least according to God's word, is actually very simple. It is Christ. And that is because we were made by Christ, and we were made for Christ, and we will find our greatest joy in Christ. Which also means, and please hear this, to crave anything or anyone more than Christ... Well, that is to put you on the road to apostasy, which is a road that leads only to hell. Such was the case in Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering. The false teachers, they have picked up speed on this apostasy highway. And worse than that, they were a plague upon the church because these false teachers were dragging down the rest of the congregation with them. You will recall, this is why Paul told Timothy to stay in Ephesus where he had planted him. He was to do so because, if you go all the way back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy was there to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
You see, the, the Hymenaeuses and Alexanders of the world, they who had 1 Timothy 1.19 made shipwreck of their faith. They were pulling others down by this undertow. And so as we come now towards the end of Paul's first letter to his young protege, Timothy, what you will find Paul doing time and time again is, is warning Timothy, encouraging Timothy, reminding him that the Christian faith is worth fighting for. Now to feel the weight of this, and by that I mean its utter seriousness, I want to employ a metaphor this morning. And it's a metaphor that I'm getting right from our passage of Scripture. It's the metaphor of health. And so in that vein, we will unfold this passage of Scripture in front of us by noting the disease, the symptoms, and the remedy. That's where we're going. The disease, the symptoms, and the remedy. When it comes to these false teachers, what was the disease that infected them? And the answer is found in verse 4. The answer is conceit. We're told in verse 4 that he, that is the false teacher, is puffed up with conceit. And so if you were to do an MRI or if you were to, to get blood work back, what would it reveal? Well, it would reveal that, that the cancer of conceit in the, the souls of these false teachers, it has metastasized, it, it is spread throughout the entirety of the body. <clears throat> now, what sort of tumor is this? When Paul says they are puffed up with conceit in verse 4, I would have you to know that that word itself, conceit, it comes from a word that means illusion. So here in the context, it refers to someone, specifically the false teacher, who is enamored with self. He or she, unfortunately, is sort of living in a fantasy world. It's an illusion. They are insanely arrogant and extremely proud. This man's head is so bloated that he can't pull his shirt down over top of it. Right? He has these, these grand illusions about himself. And the problem is they are not based in reality. And because of this, he, verse 4, understands nothing. Do you see the great irony here? This false teacher, he thinks he is so smart, but in reality, he's just brain dead. He thinks he is Christ's gift to the church, but in reality, he is actually a plague upon the church. All false teachers are. They are a plague upon the people of God. Now, before we press on, I do need to make something very clear. When vo verse 4 speaks there of the false teacher understanding nothing, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that this is some sort of mental problem. It's not it. Remember another way to say it. it. It's not that the false teacher is in need of more information. It's not a mental deficiency. You know what it is? It's a moral deficiency. It's, it's, it's not so much that the central issue is a lack of content. The central issue is it is a lack of character. That's really his disease. He loves himself. 
And he loves himself, which means he loves his learning, and he loves his position, and he loves his influence, and he loves his ideas. But he doesn't love Christ. And because he does not love Christ, his disease is terminal. So given the dreadful nature of this disease... And I would have you bear in mind, congregation, this is a disease that is contagious. What are some of the symptoms? Let me mention three. For starters, this disease manifests itself by craving change. By craving change. Here's what I mean by that. Rather than abide in the gospel of Christ, such men or, again, women, what they do is they seek to change it. Not, with, not content with what they have received from God's word. They, they tweak the message. We know this is the case because in verse 3, we read, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. And that idea of different there, it means that they have deviated from the well-worn paths. Here, here's the road, and they have turned off to go their own way. They have changed the message of Christ. And, middle of verse 3, they do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word there, sound, in Greek, it was a medical term. It was another way of speaking of health. And so what Paul is saying is that that these false teachers, rather than pouring out the life-giving medicine of Jesus Christ and his gospel, what they are doing is spewing forth acid. While Christ and his gospel give life, these false teachers and their false message, it only brings Just as a doctor today would be prosecuted for breaching the Hippocratic Oath and doing his patients harm, so these false teachers are under the judgment of God. And that is because they have changed the very gospel of God. Still thinking about this symptom of how they crave change. It's also important to notice that their bootleg Christ that they are putting out there, it doesn't lead to greater Christ-likeness. Here's what I mean. Look look at verse 3 again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and, here it is, the teaching that accords with godliness. The true gospel, it accords with godliness. Or we might say, it produces godliness. This is what the gospel does. It produces godliness. The gospel, in the hands of the Spirit of God, it works from the inside out, changing hearts and changing people. This is what the gospel does. But the false gospel that was being peddled here, it's not the true gospel. It's it's just smoke and mirrors. It's not the real gospel. And because it's not the real gospel, it offers no hope of genuine change, of genuine godliness. The fact of the matter is, what the false teachers have is nothing but a placebo. 
So catch this. The sound words of verse 3, they consist of two realities. First, sound words or sound teaching is the gospel. We are talking about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners like you. It is in Him and through Him and by Him that you and I are made right in God's sight. Full stop. Full stop. The sole ground of your acceptance before God, your justification, your sanctification, your glorification, it is owing to Christ, it is purchased by Christ, and it is worked in you through Christ. It is all about Him. That's the point. So that's the first reality intended by these sound words, these healthy words, these life-giving words. And then second, sound teaching produces godliness. As you and I hear the word of the gospel, as we see and savor Christ, as we trust Him and treasure Him, as we feed upon Him and fellowship with Him, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Just as that branch plugged into the vine bears fruit, so too we bear the fruit of the Spirit as we are plugged into Christ by the Gospel. In short, we become more godly. We become more Christ-like. So the point is, again, these sound words, these, this sound teaching, this, this healthy teaching, it is both gospel and godliness. And while we must make a distinction between them, we cannot ever fully separate the two. And that is because there is a symbiotic relationship that exists. The gospel leads to, it produces godliness. The gospel transforms us. It, it can't not. You understand that, right? The gospel is the power of God. So, so just as when there is rain, the ground is wet, so when the gospel takes root in someone's heart, there is godliness. And so if I can put it this way, gospel and godliness, they are the twin symptoms of faithful teaching, of sound words, of healthy teaching. But in Ephesus, where these wolves are in sheep's clothing, they have mutilated the gospel, and therefore they have neutered godliness. This all leads to a second symptom. Not only do these false teachers crave change, they also crave controversy. Verse 4 tells us that, that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. That phrase there, unhealthy craving, it translates a term that means to be ill or infected with a disease. So, so, so here it sort of carries with it the idea that this false teacher is, is troubled or tormented in his mind. Right? You, you get the picture? 
This is a man who was not well. This is a man who was always looking for a fight. As someone has said, he, he not only longs to split hairs, but he tries to do so with a chainsaw. For him, everything is a hill to die on. He's never been wrong. He knows more than everybody. And lucky for you, he's happy to inform you of this discovery. Even if you don't ask him, he will be sure to tell you. Now this craving of controversy, it often manifests itself over words. That's the middle of verse 4, right? And for quarrels about words, literally, word war. That's what it says in the Greek, word war. This false teacher, this plague upon the church, he wants to go to the mat over every single syllable. He, he lives for the idea of verbal fisticuffs. Everything is black and white. There is no gray. Every jot and tittle is a first order doctrine. If you don't cross every T and dot every I just the way that he does, chances are you are not actually saved. That's the flavor. Now what is the result? What does this craving of controversy produce? Well, in verse 4, what you see is a five-fold collection of calamities. End of verse 4. Which produce, right? Give birth to. This is the result of, what do you get? You get envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. What you have here, it's like Pandora's box being unleashed upon the church. To begin with, you have envy. And envy, like a disease, it gnaws away at the inner person. And it provokes a hatred toward others that just destroys relationships. It, it's like holding a firecracker in the palm of your hand and then closing over it. All envy does is produce damage. Then you have dissension. This is the idea of just utter chaos and division in the life of the church. Like a, like a big pot of stew, this man is always stirring things up, seeking to cause drama. Then you have slander, or more literally, abusive and defamatory speech. Which, of course, is hardly a shock. This stuff tends to follow false teachers as thunder follows lightning. Then you have evil suspicions. There's almost a paranoia, isn't there? Who's doing what? Why are they doing it? What's the aim? What's the goal? All of a sudden, people are viewed as a threat to the regime. You, you dare not cross Pastor X. If so, heads are going to roll. Finally, Paul mentions constant friction. And of course, what else would you expect? At this point, sparks are flying. The false teacher refuses to repent or to submit to the elders of the church. At this point, the church is being torn apart. Souls are being crushed. The very name of Christ is being maligned. This is all collateral damage. 
this envy, dissension, slander, suspicions, friction. This is all sort of the symptoms of a false teacher. This is what he leaves in his wake. And remember, it all stands in stark contrast to what healthy or sound teaching produces. Remember, healthy, sound teaching, it proclaims the gospel and it produces godliness. But unhealthy, sickly teaching, it tends to proclaim self and then produce sin. Now, speaking of sin, let's turn to our third and final symptom. What will this dreadful disease look like? Well, it will look like craving change, craving controversy, and of course, craving cash. Craving cash. Look at the end of verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Church, hear me well. One of the telltale signs of false teaching and a false teacher is this. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Thinking that being a Christian, that being a follower of Jesus, that what that means is financial gain. This, of course, is what makes the so-called prosperity gospel so evil. You know the folk. Sort of the, the health and wealth people, the name it and claim it bunch. What they offer is a false gospel. What they offer is a gospel that preys upon people's natural desires. Can, can we just be honest? Who doesn't want to be healthy and happy? Who doesn't want to be rich and relaxed? There's nothing supernatural going on there. There doesn't require a spirit, a, a work of the Spirit of God in the human heart for someone to go, yeah, I want to be fat and lazy. I want to be comfortable. I want to have all my needs met. Where do I sign up for that? that that's just preying upon people's natural desires. And what it does so quickly is it reduces Christ to a vending machine. Christ now is someone who exists to exalt me. When in reality, you and I were created to exalt Him. Perhaps more tragically, though, is, that, is not only is this false gospel offered, but it deceives and inoculates people to the true gospel. I would so much rather evangelize an utter pagan than someone caught up in the health and wealth nonsense. And that's because at least with a pagan, I don't have to spend half of my time trying to deconstruct his so-called Christian worldview. He doesn't have one. But with the health and wealth folks, they think they are Christians. They think they have the gospel. They are in a cult. And if you think you have the gospel and you don't, that is the height of deception despair. But let's be fair. It's not only the prosperity gospel proponents that fit this bill. Let's be honest. In a lot of ways, this is also one of our blind spots, isn't it? We all have a little prosperity gospel in us. And if you doubt me, that's fine. Try this on and see if it fits. We are prone to think 
that to some degree, if I would just obey God and do all the right things, then God will do what? Well, then God will bless me. And that blessing, that sort of Christian shibboleth, what we often mean by that is, is that God is going to give me the stuff that I want. And what do we want except money? This is just built into us. You and I, we swim in an ocean of consumerism. And it's very hard to swim in that ocean without getting a little wet ourselves. This is how we view God, right? We do good, God will do good for us. We do bad, God will be mad at us. And so, so often, how, how Christians sort of live the Christian life is they run it through this grid. If, if I would just learn to do the right things and just do what I'm supposed to do and just check all of the right boxes, then, then everything would be fine. But what you have to understand is that that is nothing less than the prosperity gospel. Granted, it's decaf, but it's still the prosperity gospel. At least the prosperity gospel folks have the decency to be consistent. They're full-blown. We're just closet. So here's the deal. And this is why this is such a big deal. The true gospel, it stands in stark opposition to the prosperity gospel. And that is because of this. Please hear me. The gospel tells us that we can never do enough good. We can never get our act together enough. We can never on our end do something that would actually earn God's blessings. You don't have it in you to merit grace or to merit righteousness. Not by your faith, not by sowing your seed, not by your so disciplined, quote-unquote, quiet times. Rather, instead of, instead of calling us to work and do the right things and expect that God will pump out the blessings to us like a vending machine, the gospel calls us to simply rest in the utter sufficiency of Christ for us. Now, it's true. You might not be healed. You might not get a big house on the hill. You might not have victory over that one particular sin in your life. That's, I understand that. But Christian, you will have Christ you will have the hope of heaven. And so the question for us is this. Is that enough? Is Christ enough? Can your heart be satisfied with Christ? If the answer is yes, praise God. If the answer is no, then we're just closet prosperity gospel people. We're just drinking decaf. That's all it is. As we're mulling over this third symptom of craving cash, we also ought to take a sober inventory of our own hearts and, and really our own wallets. You and I, we exist in the single most prosperous land in all of, of human civilization. You and I have more servants on our phone than King Solomon did in his court. Think about that. Think about that. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have to thank God for these blessings. 
But as we do, let us also remind ourselves that we cannot, I repeat, cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon meaning money, wealth. Today we might say materialism. And the reason that we cannot serve God and materialism, God and mammon, is because this money, this wealth, this materialism, it is deceptive, it is dangerous, and it's damning. You know why materialism is so deceptive? Because what it does is it promises lies. It tricks us. It's, it's like the mouse who thinks he's going to get a piece of cheese only to have that hammer snap down on his neck. Verse 9 tells us that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Into what? Into a mousetrap. Into a snare. The deceptive nature of all of this is simply this. It is never enough. It's never enough. It's like, it's like trying to quench your thirst by guzzling seawater. It, it's like biting into a nice piece of meat only to choke on the bone. You know this. That brand new car that you got five years ago that you loved and thought you would never need anything else? Yeah, it's starting to wear and tear. That house, that watch, that phone, that jacket, that wife, fill in the blank. It's never enough. We always think, just a, just a little bit more, just one more. There's always this carrot dangled out in front, and we continue to march and march and march toward it. It's lying to you. It's deceptive. If that wasn't enough, it's also dangerous. Verse 9 again. But those who desire to be rich fall into, te into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. You have to understand that craving cash, right? Lusting after materialism, it will take you places, brother and sister, you do not want to go. Selfishness, cheating, fraud, lying, covetousness, discontentment, Resentment, all of these things that used to be in your heart utter foes, before long they will become friends. And that's because at heart, this materialism, this pursuit of wealth, it is a false god. And like all false gods, it will lead you to disaster. There, there's not enough incense you can pinch. There's not enough virgins you can throw in the volcano. This will never be satisfied. This false God will take your soul. He'll take your soul. Which leads to, again, this idea of it being damning. Verse 9, once more. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that do what? That plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul goes on, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Catch this. It is through this craving, the, the craving of money, wealth, materialism, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You notice in verse 9, what is, what the, 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 what is connected is, is craving cash is connected with apostasy. You, you understand? Apostasy is falling away from Christ. 
Apostasy is, I once made a profession of faith, I once identified, I once said I was a Christian, and apostasy is no more. Not, I, not, not anymore. No, I'm not Christian now. Why? They have, th- through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. This will lead you away from Christ. It's not insignificant. It's not a minor thing. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but when it comes to money, souls hang in the balance. Your soul hangs in the balance. So remember, the disease here is unbridled conceit. The false teacher, he is, as someone put it, a pompous ignoramus. And the symptom of this disease, well, he craves change, he craves controversy, and he craves cash. Now, if that's the disease and the symptoms, what is the remedy? Or, if we can just sort of dispense with the metaphor for a moment, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid apostasy? Here's the prescription. Here's the medicine. First, we must fully embrace Christ and Christ alone. No substitutes, no placebos, only Christ and Christ only. We must come to the settled conviction that Christ is our health. Christ is our healer. Christ is our helper. Christ is our hope. Christ is our holiness. He and He alone is the only one who can cleanse us from the filth of our sin. He's the only one that can remove that malady. Christ and Christ alone is the great physician who gives us that heart transplant that we so desperately need. Brothers and sisters, it is Christ and Christ alone who will cure us. So rest in Him. Rest in the balm of His blood that you might have life. Remember up in verse 3, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, sound there is a medical term. It means to be healthy or to be wholesome. So the question is, well, do you want to be healthy, spiritually speaking? Do you want to be whole, spiritually speaking? And if the answer is yes, then you must lean into and rest in Christ. For He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Second, we must foster contemplation. Remember the disease of the false teachers. It is, verse 4, to be puffed up with conceit. So the remedy then is to be brought low, to be humbled, to be made small. How do we do this, you ask? What, What does this look like? Well, let me ask you. Have you ever uh, laid out in the front lawn and looked up at the night sky and tried to count all the stars? Have you ever been on an airplane and, and looked out the window and, and just saw what, was it, like, do, do, what is taking place? You are 30,000 feet up in the air and you're seeing mountains and lakes and rivers and forests. Have you ever been driving along in your car and been caught in a storm that was so vicious you had to pull over and just just wait it out? 
in all of these situations and countless more, what you were supposed to feel, what you were supposed to be overwhelmed with is your smallness, your finitude, your neediness. The stars are innumerable. The mountains are magnificent. Weather is terrifying. It all has a way of reminding us how tiny and weak and frail we are. And friend, that is a good place to be. And so Christian, to foster contemplation, we must direct our attention to the glory of Christ. If if you were to be small, then you have to fix your eyes on the one who is big. If you were to be captivated by the glory of Christ and satisfied in Him, then you must realize how glorious and satisfying He is. Just as you don't make the Swiss Alps glorious by viewing them, right? they, they are intrinsically glorious, but you still have to go to Switzerland, take a hike, and open your eyes. You must breathe them in to see how wonderful they are. So Christian, you must satisfy your heart with Christ by contemplating His goodness and His beauty and His glory and His grace and His sacrifice and His love. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to foster contemplation. Meditate, Christian, for example, upon Christ's eternality. The Son of God, He has always been. He he has no beginning nor end. He always was, is, and will be. He exists outside of time. For crying out loud, He created time. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the eternal Son of God. Be in awe of Him. Or consider His miraculous birth. He who created, sustains, and rules over every single creature in the cosmos, He Himself became a creature. Christ so humbled himself that he was born of a virgin. He was born as this tiny, little, vulnerable, helpless baby. Imagine, if you can, the almighty Son of God nursing at the breasts of Mary. He who is life itself needed his mother's milk to survive. or contemplate His utterly perfect life. From Mary's tummy to Rome's cross, Christ was sinless. We we can scarcely fathom this. He never, ever, not once broke God's law. And I don't mean not just during Holy Week or Good Friday or something like that. No, I mean like from the beginning, Christ only ever obeyed His Father perfectly. He pleased God in everything, not just his actions, but even his attitudes. 
the very motivations of Christ's heart were sinless. Christ was perfection and righteousness and God embodied in human flesh. If that doesn't stir your heart, what will? Or if you can linger for a moment at his horrific death, see his nakedness and his shame. Watch him writhe in agony and struggle to breathe, even as blood poured forth from his skull where a crown of thorns was placed to mock and jeer him. See this worm of a man expire on the cross. And as you do, take sober note, Christian, he is dying under the weight of God's judgment. This death was no accident, and neither was it a common death. The prophets tell us that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ was cursed of God. Meaning that there upon that cross, the very wrath of God against sin was meted out upon his only perfect son. What this means, of course, is that Christ's death, it was substitutionary. That is to say, it was in your place. Christ's death, yes, it was a sinner's death, but was, it was a sinner's death on behalf of sinners. And, and his death, it was as glorious as it was horrific. I say it's glorious because Christ's death was a wrath-absorbing, sin-paying, freedom-giving, life-changing, hope producing, Satan-defeating, glory-promising death. When the eternal Son of God expired under the weight of God's wrath for our sin, a torrent of grace and mercy and love washed upon us. If your heart is still not thrilled, mull over his powerful resurrection. Death could not hold Christ. Why could death not hold Christ? Because death, the grave, is for sinners. And though Christ was treated as a sinner, we know he was not a sinner. He was perfectly righteous, right? Even though he was condemned, he was righteous. So what did the grave do? It spit him out. It had no claim on him or right over him. And beloved, please hear this. When Christ walked out of that tomb on Easter morning, he did so in complete victory. Not just victory over the grave, but victory over death itself. Victory over sin. Victory over hell. Victory over Satan. Think about this, and I don't mean like think about it like you think about your math equations, like your, your times tables. I mean like think about it like glory in this. By Christ's powerful resurrection, he has triumphed over every single one of your greatest enemies and fears. The grave is no longer the end for you. Death 
has been killed. Sin has been defeated. The fires of hell have been extinguished. And Satan himself has been defanged. Is this not an occasion to rejoice? Or Christian, reflect upon the fact of Christ's intercession on your behalf. What is Christ doing right now in these very moments? Well, Scripture tells us that He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Why? Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8 asks that wonderful question, Who is to condemn? Scripture answers, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Nobody. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no. Not there in the future, if you do enough good works, if you have enough faith, if you get through purgatory, if you pray this, if you do that. Not in the future. There is now no condemnation. Right now, in this moment, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You think that's because of you? No. What did you do? What did you bring to the party? Your sin. That's what you have contributed. Christ is not interceding for you the way a parent cheerleads for his son or daughter on the sidelines, just hoping that he or she makes that game-winning shot. Christ, the the unique God-man, the Son of God, His intercession for you, it is perfectly effective. It doesn't fail or waver. Just as the high priest under the old covenant would intercede on behalf of Israel, so you can be sure Christ intercedes on behalf of those who are in the new covenant. And Christ's intercession is just as true and powerful and effective as his life, death, and resurrection. Or perhaps dwell upon Christ's promised return. We are told in the moment, rather in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed and transformed when Christ returns. On that day, we will behold Christ in all His glory. His kingdom will be consummated. You and your loved ones will be resurrected. The earth will be remade. And, and paradise itself, that which you and I only now see with the eyes of faith, on that day, brothers and sisters, we will taste it. We will touch it. Can you imagine what a new heaven and new earth will smell like? It will be glorious. That is our inheritance. Now let me tell you, or let me ask you after, uh, let, let me ask you rather, after hearing all of that, can you for a moment really be puffed up? Can you really stand there and think, well, that I'm going to be the one that gets the gold? No, of course not. And the reason that your heart is racing is because we have filled your minds with the aroma of Christ. And Christ is the chemo that eradicates the cancer. 
What is the remedy then? How do we avoid apostasy? First, we must fully embrace Christ and Christ alone. Second, we must foster contemplation. And now third, I will be very brief, we must cultivate contentment. Verse 6 is a dagger in the heart of the so-called prosperity gospel as well as a dagger in the heart of our latent materialism. We read, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if you have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Brothers and sisters, you were born naked, you'll die naked. In between, if God gives you a roof and a pair of pants, that's all you need. That's all you need. With these, we will be content. But of course, Christ has given us so much more, hasn't he? I mean, let's be real. God has literally given himself to us. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. We are actually adopted into God's family, welcomed to call him father as if we belong there, and then invited up to sit at table with him. We are promised eternal life and resurrection glory. And if that wasn't enough, we are also guaranteed an inheritance. And just so we're all on the same page, none of this is owing to you. It's all grace. Literally, every single syllable, it is all about what Christ has done for you. So here's the question. Is that enough? Is Christ enough for you? Brother or sister, can you be content right now in this life knowing all that Christ has promised for you and purchased for you in the life to come? Is Christ I began by asking a very serious question. I don't expect you to remember it now. It was this. How do we avoid apostasy? And the answer, church, is as beautiful as it is simple. The answer is Christ. Rest in Christ. Sink your teeth in Christ. Settle for nothing less and long for nothing more. Christ is enough. Join with me in prayer. Father, we echo, Augustine, we echo Augustine's words this morning. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. And so it is, Lord, our prayer this morning that as we quickly approach the celebration of Advent, as we give gifts, as we eat meals, as we sing songs, as we hug and love one another, as we rejoice together, that Christ would be enough. That you would give us a heart for Christ, a single-minded devotion to your Son, our Savior. And where our faith is weak, where our hearts are divided, we pray that your Spirit would encourage us and that you would pour out grace upon grace 
where we stand today just in need of the grace and blood of Christ as we did the day we were converted. Be merciful to us, we pray now, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.